welcome to Dr. Carol's Couch with your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of Dr. Lieberman, her guests, and callers. Now it's time to have a seat on Dr. Carol's Couch. Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Um, today we have a super important show for you. Um, for the survival of America and all of that. It's called Who Makes Americans Hate America and Each Other? Obama. Hear why. And uh, we have the best person to tell you why, someone who has been studying this um, by the name of Scott McKay. He has written a book that has just been released um, called Racism, Revenge, and Ruin, it's all Obama. Um, <laughs> Scott McKay. Scott, are you... Uh, now, this book came out in November, um, and you're still alive. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> they hadn't got me yet. <laughs> um, or unless it's AI or something. <laughs> well, so far as I know, it's me. <laughs> um but so Scott has done a study um, of Obama. Let me just give you a little background for him. First of all, he started in 1997 with the launch of Purple and Gold, which was a sports magazine devoted to college athletics at Louisiana, Louisiana State University. That was his and that was, you know, uh, got awards. I mean, it was considered the best uh, well-written college sports publication. And then he moved from there to, um, well, two things mainly, um, being a columnist at the American Spectator since 2012. And um, he also wrote a political book. His first one was called The Revivalist Manifesto, which is the distillation of his work at the Hayride. Oh, yes. The Hayride is predominant uh, um, work besides this book that just came out. The Hayride is an award-winning culture and politics site that covers Southern and national events. So he's taken his first book, political book, the Revivalist Manifesto, and what he writes on the Hayride, and he put it together. And um, he, he, well, no, I'm sorry. He put the Hayride and um, and the American Spectator, and he put it together in his first political book called The Revivalist Manifesto. And um, this uh, talks about the need and opportunity to form a new American political consensus, which a in which a, a rethought conservative movement assumes leadership and creates a national revival. Can we use a revival? Okay. But today we are going to talk about his new book, which, oh man, I was telling him before the show started that I I love bashing Obama. And I don't mean bashing in kind of a flippant sort of way, even though that sounds like that. Um, I mean, really doing it in a way that wakes people up to just how destructive. I mean, I guess it's Obama and Soros. And I know that Soros has funded Obama. Um, but the two of them are single-handedly, uh, dual-handedly, uh, destroying America. And so I like to bring Obama up because uh, to 
you know, let people know why we need to pay more attention to him. He's hiding. You know, Biden was hiding in the basement in 2020 when he was running for president. Um, Obama is hiding in the basement or wherever um, in his pond where his chef died. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And he is, I mean, he, 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 I'm sure you might have even included this in your book about how Obama said that what he would like to do is not run for president again. But you tell us the quote. Yeah, he was, I guess it's the Stephen Colbert show a few years ago. Um, And Obama said, you know, what I'd really like is to have an earpiece, you know, in some guy that I, you know, that I could sit uh, in my, uh, you know, man cave and and give him orders and have him do what I want. Um, You know, and initially, I guess the, the person with the earpiece was supposed to be Kamala Harris. Because that's who Obama's uh, funders and everybody else uh, tried to back in advance of the 2020 election cycle. Mm-hmm. And she crashed and burned on takeoff. Um, couldn't even get really get further than, than Iowa. And so they ultimately settled on Biden and then, you know, put Kamala Harris in as the vice presidential candidate. And, you know, but Biden was sort of a crash and burn on takeoff candidate in 2022. I mean, there was no particular... Uh, momentum or, or or anything behind him. You know, he's getting beat by Pete Buttigieg and Bernie Sanders and some of these other ones. Um, and then all of a sudden, you know, it's just like by magic, Joe Biden is the nominee and everybody's dropping out of the race. And then he picks, you know, Kamala Harris, who nobody wanted as his number two. And the, the most obvious connection here and the most obvious explanation for how this was done is that these are Obama's puppets at the top and, 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 you know, number two on the ticket. And so, you know, I mean, this is anybody else. Bernie Sanders would not have been Barack Obama puppet. They believe most of the same things ideologically, but you know, the various scams that get run out of a white house, you know, Bernie Sanders would have had different scams. And so, you know, that wasn't, that wasn't going to work. And, you know, meanwhile, Biden is, suitably compromised on a whole bunch of different levels um, that, you know, you can control a guy like that. And I think that if you pay attention to Barack Obama's influences at the beginning, his, you know, his early career, everything having to do with his political rise, you know, what you see is this guy is a massive control freak. And so um, at least until things change, Whoever the Democrats nominate, whether it's Joe Biden this cycle or if they find somebody else, is going to be a puppet of the Obama machine, period. They're in control of the Democrat Party. They will make sure that someone who is dutifully observant of their wishes uh, is is who it is. And, you know, obviously that that brings Michelle Obama to the table as as, you know, somebody everybody talks about it. I don't know that, that that works out for two main reasons. Number one, she's not about the work and she doesn't, she's not, um, she doesn't like to be a political front man per se. And then number two is you can't tell her what to do, mm-hmm. but if they can get past those two things, absolutely. They would dump her in at the convention uh, because Biden's poll numbers are so bad right now that it's difficult to see him um, being able to beat Trump. And, you know, Trump going in for another term is very, very bad for the Obama machine. So, uh, but I wrote the book 
because as you said in the open, the changes that have come about in this country uh, that really nobody voted for, right? Like we didn't elect Barack Obama in 2008 to effect a fundamental transformation of the country. When he said that, everybody thought that was just eh, politicians say things and they don't really need them. This guy did. Um, and so, you know, whether it's the apology tour or, you know, racial pyromania or transgenderism or corporate oligopoly, all these different things that have come about as a as a, a product of Obama's uh, time as the most influential political figure in America. Very few of those things anybody voted for. Very few of them poll very well. And yet we've gotten them. And we're a totally different country than we were in 2007 when this before right before this guy became a major political figure or president. Um, and, you know, so I wanted to do a study of the effect this guy has had and they, and to give people, you know, arm them with the information of, look, society didn't evolve this way organically. It's been contrived and executed to produce these effects that nobody wanted. Um, and, you know, the more I dug into it, it's all Obama. This is a, by hook and by crook. He has done things that have created this country in a totally different model than it was before he came along. Well, that's my question or one of my questions. Um, did you, before you started doing the research and everything for the book, did you already, um, you know, was it that you wanted to look at what changed America or was it that you sort of knew it was Obama and you wanted to dig into Obama? Um, I'd answer it like this. I knew it was Obama. But before I did the real, like, just go through issue after issue, subject after subject, I didn't realize the depth um, by which, like, this stuff happened. So, you know, my, my take on Obama was that, generally speaking, he was almost a Mr. Magoo type of guy. Like, he was a, like the luckiest guy on the face of the earth yes. that, you know, like, how, like, this is uncanny how this guy managed to get, you know, get away with the stuff that he's done. But then, you know, when I went back and did all the risk, like, no, they 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 rigged the playing field so that he could Mr. Magoo his way through this thing. Yeah. And and I wasn't giving the guy as much credit as I should have for the level of manipulation um, that he and his team were able to do, uh, you know, I mean, across the board in like. The one thing I'll say about it, like this is the most energetic uh, politician or, or political team that we've ever seen in American history from the standpoint of, I mean, it's a holistic, every, like across the board approach to change the country in radical ways um, and to do it unconventionally. You know, you, you, like the, the, the very good example is. So they do a settlement with Bank of America for, you know, all of the banking stuff from the 2008 uh, financial collapse. Right. And the settlement is I think it was like 10 billion dollars. OK, they let Bank of America discount that settlement down to like three and a half billion. Mm. If they would donate money to Obama's pet organizations. So like from that settlement, La Raza gets 400 million dollars. OK. And none of this was reported. Like, I mean, like nobody made a big deal about it. But like 
You know how radical La Raza is. Let's give them $400 million. And how much damage do you think those people can do with that? Wow. Right. And like, you know, I, I mean, I had inklings that, that they had done some of this stuff. But then when I started doing the research and realized the full scope of like they used every single lever of power they could during those eight years to just ransack the federal treasury to give money to these left-wing radical organizations that then created cultural circumstances that the rest of the country wasn't prepared for, right? If I told you in 2009, okay, okay, most of corporate America is going to embrace DEI and ESG, and they're going to become woke corporations, and their marketing is going to um, focus solely on that, right? So much so that you would, like, you can't find a straight white couple on, uh, on a commercial than any of these companies are with. And if you can, it's a female-led relationship, right? And the, the guy is a like embarrassing beta male who can't do it. <laughs> you were seeing a little of that before Obama came along, okay? After about 2011, 2012, it's nothing but that. Now Hollywood makes movies and the girls beat the hell out of the guys. <laughs> and nobody goes to see any of those. I mean, every one of them is a dog at the box office. And yet Hollywood cannot make Chuck Norris movies anymore, okay? Mm -hmm. Like, that's not an accident. You have a very small number of people who run that cultural institution, and they're all Obama Democrats. They're all pushing, you know, this same agenda, and it doesn't matter to them, because it's not their money, that these things are dogs, and that the public doesn't want it. They're going to force it down our throats anyway. Politicians had never had that level of on uh, culture in this country. It, it, like Even in World War II, when the Defense Department, the War Department, was like commissioning Hollywood to make war movies. Mm. You know, like it's, they still weren't trying to change American culture. They were trying to reflect American culture and direct it to the war effort. But they weren't trying to like break down the nuclear family or, you know, do any of these other uh, kind of destructive things. That had never been done before. And now, like, you know, we woke up one morning and it was just normal. So the book is all about, you know, how we went from there to here um, and, and, you know, how it was done to us rather than just sort of, well, it just kind of happened because it didn't just kind of happen. Yes, yes. And, you know, um, I watched your clip on Tucker. That was a great clip. Um, we only have a few minutes before the break, but... Uh, but I want to talk about that. You know, I love Netflix. <laughs> I watch a lot of Netflix. And right. um, it really bothers me that, well, it bothers me that Obama, you know, went into movies and, I mean, he's influencing us now in another way. Um, right. And, uh, and so I want you to talk about some of the, um, some of the uh, movies that he's been doing, you know, the examples, like why, what he's trying to do, how he's trying to manipulate us um, through right. movies, which of course is an incredibly powerful tool um, yeah. to do that. But, um, but I guess what we could do is to take a break now so that we can come back and talk about that after the break. Sure. Um, my guest is Scott McKay. His book 
is called um, Racism, Revenge, and Ruin. It's all Obama. So when we come back, we'll be talking more about that. So stay tuned. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Birdie told me Voice America is on X. Follow us at Voice America TRN. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll free at 1 866 472 5788. Now back to the show. Here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. We're talking today about who makes Americans hate America and each other. And the answer is Obama. Now you're hearing why from my guest, Scott McKay, whose new book, which is making waves, (laughs) um, racism, good waves, Uh, important ways, racism, revenge, and ruin. It's all Obama. Um, You know, the, I'm sure if you, even if if you're listening from America, you certainly know this. If you're listening from another country, you've also seen it. You know, it's not a, we haven't really been able to, or what we haven't necessarily wanted to, but, but um, it's obvious that people from all over the world are seeing what, how America has changed and they're not happy with it either. So we used to be the kind of America that looked like Norman Rockwell paintings, um, a class pledging allegiance to the flag, fathers taking their sons fishing, families sitting down to dinner and giving thanks for living in America, blacks and whites together. Well, all of this um, beautiful, these are beautiful memories, but unfortunately it's not what America looks like today. And the main reason for this um, is Obama and his uh, team um, who have been changing America. You know, they, when he was running, uh, he said he was running on the promise of hope and change. Well, <laughs> he was hoping to destroy America, and he's doing it. And he certainly is changing America, has changed America. And um, 
and particularly a nation divided by race. We really weren't racist at the time that before, you know, I mean, imagine, obviously we couldn't be, we elected a black president, but everything has changed since then. Now there's CRT, uh, critical race theory being taught from elementary school on, and, um, and that has made little kids racist and, and then big kids racist. And um, it has contributed to what we see today with all of the pro-Palestinians and pro-Hamas. They don't know what they're talking about, pro-Hamas, pro-terrorist. They don't realize that these are the people who want to kill them. And they don't just want to kill Jews. They don't just want to kill people in Israel. They are coming for us, everybody, everybody who's a non-believer, an infidel, um, in terms of not believing in Islam. Okay, so my guest today, Scott McKay, is explaining all of it. And before the break, we started talking about um, uh, Netflix because Obama has uh, taken up space in Netflix. You know, Netflix right. are the people who brought you Megan and Harry. <laughs> I mean, you know, they're not necessarily, I mean, they're picking um, people and, and movies that they think are going to get people to watch, of course, so that they can get more subscribers, so that they can make more money. I mean, you know, <laughs> um, that is the American way. And I'm certainly not criticizing that because Obama would want me to criticize that. Um, but anyhow, Obama has become an executive producer and he is putting out some really bad stuff. And Scott McKay will tell you um, the best example of that so far. Right. Well, and of course, you know, I guess it's the, I don't know if it's the most commercially successful, it's probably the most talked about offering that the Obamas with this development deal that they did with Netflix after he left office um, is this leave the world behind movie. Um, which stars Julia Roberts and Ethan Hawke and Mahershala Ali. And if you haven't seen it, I'll give you the sort of quick rundown of, of what this is. Julia Roberts and Ethan Hawke are this couple from Brooklyn. She's an ad executive. He's a professor at a community college. Okay. And they rent an Airbnb on Long Island, I guess in the Hamptons or something. Um, and it's, you know, it's a really nice mansion and they, you know, come in and, and uh, uh, they're there a day or so. And then the second night, I guess, Mahershala Ali shows up with his daughter and uh, he's clearly a titan of industry of some kind. Uh, you know, he pulls up in a top of the line Mercedes, $5,000 tuxedo, you know, thousand bucks in his pocket. He says, hey, my name's George. I'm the guy who rented you this property um there's a power outage in the city can't get to my penthouse uh can we rack out the basement here's a grand to uh reimburse you for one night of your stay here right julia roberts who is clearly a democrat obama voter okay like clearly doesn't want to let him in the house why because he's black and she doesn't like black people, right? And it's, you know, and, and, I mean, and like we were talking about before, during the break. So I watched this movie before I knew that it was Obama's uh, project. Like, I, I didn't know he was the executive. And so, like, when I saw that scene, I'm like, this is the most idiotic thing I've ever seen. Forget about Julia Roberts being a, a you know, Democrat. You can go to the most backwards place in Alabama you want. And a guy with that kind of Mercedes showing, I don't care if he's black, 
He shows up. He's got $1,000 to these people. He says, hey, can we rack out in the basement of my house? And you know what they're going to say? Please tell me you brought the key to the liquor cabinet. That's what they're going to say. They're not going to tell him he can't show up at his own house. Nobody does that. Like, nobody does that. But when I when I found out it was Obama's uh, project, I was like, okay, that makes sense because Barack Obama saw everything through the lens of race. There's another scene in this deal where they're in the basement and Mahershala Ali's daughter, who's like a college kid, you know, cranks out this, like, uh, you know, um, awkwardly worded line about how, you know, when when it's a crisis and things go bad, uh, like it's, you know, it's really important that you trust people, you know, trust the right people. Don't trust white people. Even mom would say that. And mom is actually, it's implied, apparently the book this was based on, it's like more than implied. Mom is white, right? So white mom is going to tell him not to trust white people. I'm sitting there going, okay, um, like all of this. And then I don't want to give away too much of the movie in case somebody actually wants to watch it. So I'll lay off on the spoilers. But the point of this movie is society collapses. And one of the reasons society collapses is that people turn on each other. Okay. Um, and it struck me that, so we went from, September 11th, okay, when America came together as it, as it has never come together, all right? And, I mean, you know, there were 90% of the people lined up behind George W. Bush. Whether that was a good idea or not, they did it, okay? Um, and, I mean, this country was totally unified, all right? For two or three years, pretty solid. Um, and then you go from that to, you know, 2024, with this movie that comes out that basically makes the case that all you got to do is push this country a little bit and we'll all fall out amongst each other. Okay. So how, like what, where do we come, you know, where do we go from 2001? And it's not exactly the midpoint time-wise, but I think maybe culturally it's the midpoint where you could see this turning was in 2009, in like August of 2009, the Fort Hood shoot, which if you'll recall, was there was this jihadist who some kind of way was like a major in the U.S. Army stationed at Fort Hood. This guy was like, gave off all of the red flags you could possibly give off that this guy was a budding terrorist. And so he brings a gun on base and he shoots the place up, kills a whole bunch of people. And um, like they call the, the the army calls it workplace violence. Yeah. And um, I think it was George Casey was the general in charge of, of uh, uh, the, I guess he was the guy in charge of the army at that point. He says, well, the big tragedy here would be is we lost our commitment to diversity. Mm -hmm. It was like, diver yeah. no, D no, 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 no. The army doesn't get better by diversity. The army gets better by unity. And if you got diverse people who create unity, that's a good thing. Diversity in its own right for an army is not a good thing, right? I mean, at best it's neutral, but probably it's a bad thing because it's a lot easier to make a unit out of people that are similar, not diverse. You know, and then now it's like we're so diverse we can't unify. Um, and 
you know, you can't, I don't think you can make a convincing argument that Obama had nothing to do with this, right? I mean, his commitment as president and as a political figure post-presidency has been all about stoking as much division as he possibly could, right? And I, like, I mean, I could point you all kind of cases. The, the one I would pop out immediately, it was one of the earliest ones, wasn't the earliest one, the earliest one was the new Black Panther case in Philadelphia where these guys are holding nightsticks in front of a, a polling place and telling the old white ladies that they couldn't come in to vote because the black man was taken over, which is like the most egregious case of voter intimidation since the Klan and Obama's, you know, Eric Holder's uh, justice department wouldn't prosecute. But what was more pronounced than that was the Skip Gates case at Harvard, which came along in June or July of 09. And uh, in that case, Skip Gates was a professor at Harvard, black guy. Uh, he's coming back from somewhere. And he, I don't know if he forgets his key or like his key gets bent and it won't work in, his, in the lock in his front door or whatever, but he can't get in his house. And so what ultimately happens is he and the Uber driver are trying to beat down the door <laughs> to his house so he can get in. And of course the cop uh, pulls up, right? And so it's like a scene out of a Steve Martin movie, basically. <laughs> You know, and the cops like, uh, you know, what are you doing? He's, ah, it's my house, and so they end up getting in a big argument fight. And I guess Skip Gates must have been on a hair trigger. This cop is racist, and the cop is like, "You're beating the door of a house down. I got to do something." And so, you know, they they end up getting in a big argument. And the cop brings him in for disorderly conduct, I guess. All right, it's kind of the thing where you end up laughing about it after the fact, right? Because it's just a situation. Obama gets hold of this and immediately says, ah, we've seen this for, you know, police acted stupidly. And this happens all the time to black and Hispanic people. Right. And like the whole country who had voted for Obama to put race away. We had voted. We, the country had, I wasn't part of the we, the country had voted for this guy because he held out the promise of finishing race as an issue we would care about. We're not a racist country if we elect a black guy president, all right? And it was the biggest political bait and switch in American history because, and that that incident signaled, and there was a whole string of them that came after, whether it was Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown, or Eric Garner, or Alton Sterling, or all of these other you know police shootings and this kind of stuff. But that was the signal that, hey, what you bought was a pig and a poke because I am not here to unify this country across racial lines. I am here to drive wedges through you guys and make you hate each other, right? Like the Trayvon Martin case is is another great example. So they turned Trayvon Martin into a black versus white thing. Well, they there well, were no white they, people involved, and they talked about how Trayvon. I'm sure you you probably wrote about it. Um, they were making a big deal out of how Trayvon was like Obama. That Trayvon looked like yeah. Obama, Obama said, Obama. "If I had a son, he looked like Trayvon." Yeah. yeah. Yes. 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 Right. Um, yes. Uh, and of well, course, and of course, I, the answer there was so obvious and needed to be said so badly, which is this. And it applied to all of them. Michael Brown, Alton Sterling, George Floyd later, all of it, okay? Which is, hey, what? You know, speaking to black men or everybody in the country, it doesn't matter. 
whatever you do, don't live your life like Trayvon, right? This was a kid that got kicked out of school because he was stealing. He was, he was, I mean, on every kind of dope he could get his hands on. All right. Like this guy's life was going nowhere fast. And, you know, I mean, it happened with Zimmerman, but he was the kind of guy who was going to get killed in a drive-by shooting or whatever. Bad things were going to happen to him because he was living his life in a way that made them happen. Right. And what was so necessary at the time and still is, and you won't get Obama or any of his people that will actually say this is, Hey, this is behaviorally driven. Okay. You can live your life in a different way. Okay. Follow good examples and keep your nose clean and you can get ahead in this country. And Barack Obama was the perfect guy to say that because, I mean, I'm not going to say he came from nothing. He went to the best schools in Honolulu. He went to Occidental, Columbia, Harvard Law School. Like, the guy had plenty of advantages. But fatherless black kid from nowhere, blah, blah, blah. He could have said, look, you know, I'm proof that you can do anything you want to do in this country. Right? He could have said that. And he didn't. He didn't want to because it didn't serve his, his ambitions and it didn't serve his ideological perspective. He wanted the narrative that black people can't get a fair shake in this country. Because why? If you, if you push that narrative, all right, you're going to lock that vote up for the Democrat Party forever. Uh-huh. And you can make the Democrat Party ever more radical when... The ways they govern creates more and more miserable, frustrated, disenfranchised people. And that is what Obama, I call it Obamianism. That is what Obama Democrat Party politics is all about, which is failure weaponized against the society. But you, what do you mean weaponized against the society? What, what, explain that last part more. Well, um, you, I mean, you're, you're essentially breaking this country culturally, politically, and economically, all right? Um, like, I'll, like I'll, I'll do the economic piece. So every year Obama was president, all eight years, there were fewer businesses extant in this country than the year before. Every year for eight years, there were less people who were their own boss, okay? And the reason why is, and the, he had, a, and I had to go get into this in the book, he had a dinner in April of 09 with all of these left-wing historians, the Michael Besh losses and Doris Kearns, Goodwins and, and whatever. And what comes up at that, in that uh, dinner is he, he comes out and he says, I like an economy that is uh, run by government bureaucrats, union people, and like the big corporate players, right? In other words, a corporate oligopoly. Okay. And then he said about destroying small and mid-sized businesses. So that like the people who are even successful in that realm would sell out to big companies and go play golf rather than compete in the marketplace. And so now you have these massive conglomerates that dominate the conversation. And then they go and capture these comp- these corporations and turn them woke. So that, you know, like all of a sudden, if you're a traditional American, like you're not represented in corporate America anymore, which is a massive change in the way the country operates yeah. and it was i mean it was like done purposely purposefully by obama 
Well, do you think, I mean, do you think Obama himself figured all this stuff out? I mean, do you think he's that smart or, well, he's that devious, but is he that smart to figure all of these parts of this puzzle out um, and then I think he was, I think he was trained is what I think. Everything, like, he didn't invent any of this stuff. This was all, like, people had already written about it. People had already conceived it before he came along. This is Communist Party USA stuff from the 50s on up. The community organizing piece and all of that. All of that was somebody, somebody had already dreamt it up. And he read it. Obama was the one who put it together and made it, put it to use, implemented it. And, of course, with with a lot of help from Soros, who had the money behind it. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Well, there's a whole network of people that they gave resources to make this thing happen. But Obama was the guy who, I don't know, call him the puppet master, but he's the implement. Like he's the guy who put the organization together that would go and and make this work. And he's the guy as president that directed all of these actions that created these ill effects on the country. You know, um, we only have a couple of minutes left till the next break. Um, but one thing that occurs to me that uh, is could be an interesting um, uh, situation, an interesting uh, two people against each other. Um, we have Soros's son, who has been seen coming to the White House a lot, and uh, and 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 Obama, who is still the p- the key player. Um, you know, when we come back, I'm going to ask you, or it'll turn it over to you, to as far as what you think, whether they're, they get along, they're going to be working in synergy together and things are going to get worse, or whether they're going to be competing with each other for their father, well, for um, Soros's young, Soros Jr.'s father's love. We'll get, we'll talk about that when we get back. And I also want to talk about Obama's childhood, in particular in regard to terrorism and madrasas and so on. All right. So, Stay tuned. My guest is Scott McKay. His book is called, and I'm sure you've gotten um, titillated to read it, Racism, Revenge, and Ruin. It's all Obama. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and we'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times. www.drcarol.com Tune into the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. 
We're with you wherever Alexa and Google are. At home, in the car, on your smart TV, and your connected devices. Hey, Alexa. Hey, Google. Play my favorite Voice America podcast on TuneIn. It's just that easy. But make sure you actually mention the name of the podcast show to make it work. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman. And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch, where we're talking today about who makes Americans hate America and each other. The answer is Obama, and we're hearing why. From my guest, Scott McKay, whose book is Racism, Revenge, and Ruin, It's All Obama. I have been saying this, I mean, obviously not having done as much research as you have, but um, I have been talking about Obama for quite some time. And, um, you know, if you, of course, you talk about Obama and it's, you're, you're a racist, right, if you criticize him. But um, anyhow, um, but let's, let's, so wait, so we were right before the break, I promised that we were going to talk about the competition. That was the word I was looking for between Obama and the son of George Soros. I mean, psychologically, they'd be competing for daddy's love. Well, uh, (laughs) actually it sounds like the love that Alex Soros is competing for now is Huma Abedin's. Oh yeah. Which is so awful weird. in ways that I don't even want to contemplate. Yeah, so weird. Um, <laughs> but I mean, I, you know, I, look, I think that that uh, Soros and that network of nonprofits uh, that that you know he's he built twenty years ago. Uh, I mean, those guys have done an absolutely enormous amount of damage to the country, and like. I had talked about in the last segment a little bit, I talked about weaponized failure. Um, and let me, and I can tie this to Soros. Let me give you a little bit of an example. And I, cause I've written about this a thousand times at, uh, you know, at various websites of mine at the American spectator and, and other places. Um, there is something called weaponized governmental failure, which is my name for it, but this has existed for a while. And it, it has to do with urban governance, and particularly where the Democrats are concerned. So if you're a mayor of a city and you run that city successfully, in meaning you fill the potholes, the cops keep criminals from dominating the place, the schools are fairly safe, your streets, you, know, you manage traffic halfway well, um, you, you know, have a business climate that's conducive to people making money. Uh, what you're going to get is a lot of middle-class people. Um, and middle-class people are great to have in a city, but they're hard to govern because they actually expect you to use the pothole money on potholes. Mm-hmm. And the kind of people who, who run Democrat cities are not the kind of people that want to use the pothole money on potholes. They want to steal the pothole money. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, a few years ago, what they figured out was that if you steal the pothole money, okay, you would think that that would be a bad thing, but it's not because you don't lose re-election. What you lose is the middle class people who would vote against you, right? Because they know you're stealing the pothole money and they can't beat you in the election. 
So they moved to the suburbs. And the more of those people move to the suburbs, the easier it is to get reelected by stealing the pothole money. So they don't just steal the pothole money. They steal the school money. They steal the cop money. They steal everything else. The tax base goes out the door. And the big innovation that Obama was that he gave federal grant money to the cities to replace the tax base that was going out the door. So they were now fully incentivized to run these places completely into the ground, which they realized was a good thing to do when, like, for example, nobody could beat Marion Barry or Kwame Kilpatrick in these places. And it's like, well, you don't have to be good at your job, right? So you might as well stink at your job worse than anybody because that's how you can fortify your political machine. Mm-hmm. Obama was like the the Santa Claus of the weaponized governmental failure movement. Uh-huh. And of course, all of the cities in this country are completely down the tubes as a result of this. But the other flip side of this deal was that Soros was funding all of these radical left-wing nonprofit groups, the Acorn-type people of the country. And of course, James O'Keefe took a- and Andrew Breitbart took Acorn down. All right. And that was a huge victory for the conservative movement. The problem was, is that the money that was funding Acorn just started funding other organizations and, and really a myriad of them. That was kind of almost like an ecosystem that they built. Okay. Those organizations are what runs Democrat cities now. They're, they've replaced the old school, you know, machine politics of these cities that was based on unions and all that kind of stuff. Okay, but let's get back to the Soros versus Soros' son versus Obama. Well, what I'm saying is they're flip sides of the same coin, which is destroying these cities, right? So Soros is the one that that gets all the DAs elected, that let all the criminals out of jail, that make the, the, the cities total cesspools of crime and drugs and everything else, that creates nothing but Democrat voters. Now, um... Do these guys then compete? Yeah, I'm not talking about necessarily politically, but I'm talking about these two men. Do they hate each other because they're competing with Daddy Soros? Who's going to get attention? I I, I don't, you know, honestly, it's a really interesting question. And what I would say is we'll probably find out over the next six months or so. Um, And the, the crucible of this may be this kind of decision about Biden, right? Like, can we actually run this guy in the fall? Or is it, is it, you know, like, are we going to get, are we going to get killed by Trump if we do? And if he, if he has to go, then who does, who's uh, next on the ticket? Right. Um, Cause like, I don't know if the Soros have a candidate. Um, have a what? A candidate? I, like, I don't know that they have a candidate that they would say oh. no we want so and so to parachute in. Yes. Like I don't know that they have one. unless it's uh, his, unless it's his son. But okay, but I want to make sure we have enough time to talk about oh what I can to Can you imagine to. Alex Soros as the Democrat? Yes, I can. That, you just blew my mind. <laughs> um, what a dystopian nightmare that would be. Um, but I wanted to get to. I don't want to. I want to make sure we have enough time to get to. Obama, uh, Obama's youth, Obama's childhood in the madrasas. Right. Because Obama is president 
who made us the most vulnerable to terrorists. He is, I say he is a terrorist. Terrorist in chief is what I call him. Uh, go ahead. Well, I mean, you know, the first 10 years of his life, um, he was in Indonesia, you know, which is a Muslim country. And he went to Muslim schools. Um, you know, then when he's 10, they move him to Hawaii, right? Um, and after that, there's not an enormous amount of evidence that Obama, uh, you know, continued much a relationship with Islam. On the other hand, we do know that he was exceptionally chummy with Louis Farrakhan when he was in Chicago, like exceptionally chummy. But, you know, and I write about this part in the book, you know, what fascinates me more than anything was uh, one of his chief mentors when he was at Columbia was a guy by the name of Edward Said, who's a, a, a professor, a Palestinian, poli-sci professor at Columbia. Um, Palestinian, uh, big Hamaska, Edward Said. Um, and then in Chicago, uh, one of his very good friends was a guy by the name of Rashid Khalidi, who was a professor at the University of Chicago, also a Palestinian, also a big Hamaska. So, and there's this story of a going away party. And I, this is like in 2004 or five, something somewhere in there. Uh, Khalidi's leaving University of Chicago because he just got a professorship at Columbia. And they throw this party. And apparently Obama gives a speech at the dinner that is so noxious and so on fire as an anti-Israel uh, bromide uh. that like people who have seen it where, you know, like he could never be president if this got out. Right. Well, there's video of this speech. It's sitting in the archives of the Los Angeles Times, which refuses to release the video wow. because they say, well, you know, we're protecting a source that doesn't want it released. All right. They've sat on this video for 17, 18 years now. Um, and, and the reason is, is the Chicago Tribune got and they didn't run it. And then I guess the same company um, uh, owned the two and some, some kind of way it ended up in L.A. So, but anyway, L.A. Times refuses to release this video. And everybody who's seen it has said that Obama's anti-Israel bias, for lack of a better term, is so clearly stated in this thing that mm -hmm. like, you know, a lot of the Jewish support that he got, for example, in 2008, he would have got none of it. That money would have never showed up for him. And that support would have never showed up for him. And the thing of it is, is that those rumors, allegations, whatever you want to call them, are they, I mean, they're so obviously true because if you look at how he governed as president, and if you look at what he's turned the Democrat Party into from the standpoint of Israel versus um, the, the Palestinians or the Gazans or Hamas, okay, you know, and, and, and from a greater standpoint than that, he goes to Turkey and he's giving an apology tour speech about racism and injustice to the Turks. I mean, there's nobody who's more genocidal and has a worse history. Slavery. 
right, than Turkey. I mean, these guys were the worst people ever. He goes there. But look at the Israel-Gaza conflict today and look at the pattern, you know, how Biden handles it now, which is he wants a ceasefire, right? Which, like, what's the purpose of a ceasefire? Let Israel win the war for once and all, and, we, and, and maybe we'll be done with this. But when Obama was president, this stuff happened all the time. The Palestinians would start some awful atrocity to try to start a war. And the Israelis would then go in, right, start beating on the Palestinians in retaliation. And immediately the U.S. would jump in and demand that the Israelis submit to a ceasefire, bring things back so that the Palestinians had no negative consequences for whether it was an intifada or rocket attacks or any other kind of atrocities that they would perpetrate on Israel. And so this pattern is unbroken where it comes to the Democrats and the Obama Democrats in specific doing, you know, pro-Palestinian policy, but not advertising it that way because the political consequences of doing so prevent them from being open about their pro-Hamas thing. Of course, it's more open now than it ever was, largely because of what has happened at the colleges. Um, and of course, these are all, you know, Obama's buddies in the pro-Hamas movement on campus. Yes, yes. Yes, it is very, very frightening. Um, you know, they're caught, they're trying, or Biden was trying to sort of pretend that he's, um, you know, staying in the middle, right? Um, trying to, but it's clear that he's anti-Israel and it's clear that it's because of Obama um, being his puppeteer. And it's, this yeah. is very, it's very interesting what you talked about with this, um, with this speech. Um, it would be great to get one's hands on this speech. I, I mean, I, you know, but look, and that, and that story is such a microcosm of yeah. how the, the legacy corporate media has prevented the American people from seeing who Barack Obama was and, and how it all connects up to what he's done to the country, which, look, this is why I wrote the book, right? Because uh, there have been other books about Obama, but I don't know that any of them have really contextualized who this guy is, where he came from, why he did what he did, the things he did, and you know why they're what we're dealing with as Americans now. Like, I don't know that anybody's done this, this, all of that work, you know, and I did it for this book. So you ought to buy it. Yeah. <laughs> like everybody ought to go get this thing. Thank goodness you did. <laughs> Again, the book is called Racism, Revenge and Ruin. It's all Obama. It's uh, really, really important. And people need to read this uh, before they vote. Um, because for, sure. the vote for for pretty much anybody, actually, uh, from what you're saying in the Democratic Party is really a vote for Obama, you know, allowing him, assuming that, that it's someone who will allow him to dominate them. Certainly Kamala, as you were mentioning earlier. Oh, yeah. That would be a disaster, too. Well, thank yeah. you so much, Scott McKay. This has been really fascinating. I wish you continued success with the book. Uh, everybody should buy it and read it. <laughs> and um and and tell friends you know about what you've learned all right thank you so much um thanks carol and, and thank you for listening you've been listening to dr carol's couch and i'm your psychiatrist host dr carol lieberman thank you for joining us on dr carol's couch 
Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat.